our series on Paul's letter to the church at Rome. We want to turn uh, to the ninth chapter of Romans. There is a bulletin insert in your bulletin that has our passage of Scripture printed upon it. And we'll use this as a unison reading. And while you're looking for that, I'll say a word to the high school graduates. You know, guys, uh, the book of Proverbs tells us that a desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. And I know probably for some of you, this day couldn't arrive quick enough. And for others of you, you didn't mind it spreading the time out. But uh, it is uh, sweet to the soul. And we appreciate all that you've done and what God's done through you already in your lives and look forward to what he'll do in the, in the days to come. Okay, so we're going to read the Word of God, beginning to read at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, If the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, as you can tell, that's not the easiest passage that there is in Scripture, and hopefully you'll stay with me through the introductory material of the sermon and through the technical stuff because I want to try and 
tie it all up together at the end in a way that has meaning for us. I know that last week was a holiday weekend, which means many of you were traveling and were not here. And besides that, we have a lot of visitors here today for our high school graduates, members of their families and friends, and we certainly welcome you to this place. And what we need to know, if you weren't here last week, is that as we're going through this letter to the church at Rome, Paul has entered into a new section of this letter in chapters 9, 10, and 11. He's dealing with Israel and the relationship of the gospel to God's chosen people, the Jews. And within this larger question of Israel, Paul has been speaking about the doctrine of election... And as he continues the argument that he began in last week's passage, he begins to move past election and to the issue of salvation itself as he continues to answer rhetorical questions, the kind of questions that many of his opponents or anyone, in fact, hearing his argument for the first time might ask. And so as we move into this Uh, passage today, I'm going to take us someplace you probably won't guess, and that's to Matthew chapter 20, to a parable of Jesus, to give us perspective here. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to uh, Matthew 20, the beginning of that chapter, where Jesus gives us the parable of the workers in the vineyard. If you don't have your Bible, I'll rehearse the key points of that story. This is one of those parables that Jesus begins with one of His favorite lines. The kingdom of heaven is like. And on this occasion He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for His vineyard. And Jesus begins to tell us in that parable how there's a place, obviously, where workers congregate day laborers hoping to be hired. And this man went out at the beginning of the day, meaning 6 a.m. That's the Jewish reckoning of time for the day, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so he went out at 6 a.m. and he hired some workers right there on the spot. And he made a deal with them. He said, I'll pay you a denarius. A denarius is a, a day's rate, a day's wage for one day of work. And so they agreed on the wages. And then we're told in the parable that the landowner went out at the third hour, meaning at nine in the morning, he hired some more. He went out at the sixth hour, meaning noon, he hired some more. He went out at the ninth hour, meaning three in the afternoon, he hired some more workers. Even at the eleventh hour, 5 p.m., one hour left to work before dark, he hired some more workers. And then Jesus says, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the workers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. Now if you know anything about Jesus' parables, you know that he normally has a little twist built into the parable, something you're not expecting. And so as this steward begins to pay the laborers beginning with the last hired, they get a denarius a whole day's wage for one hour's work. 
So what do you think the ones in line at the end of the line, the ones who've worked all day, what do you think they're going to think? Oh, boy. You know, if they got a whole day's wage for one hour's work, think what we're going to get. But what did they get? The same thing. They received a denarius. And Jesus tells us on receiving it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, These last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And then the landowner replies, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now for those of you who are business people, you're probably thinking there's no way that landowner's ever going to make any money. Not to mention the low morale of workers who aren't necessarily treated the same. But we have to remember that that God's ways are not our ways, nor His thoughts our thoughts, as the prophet Isaiah tells us in his 55th chapter. We have to keep in mind that God has a great care and love for people, as Paul makes clear in our passage, and as Jesus makes clear in this parable in Matthew 20. When we read the parable carefully, we can see that the workers standing out there waiting to be hired, they've stood out there all day long. And they didn't get hired, and they they took all the, the scorching heat from the sun. They're still standing out there at 5 p.m. That must mean they desperately want a job, and they desperately need a job. As James Montgomery Boyce puts it in his book, The Parables of Jesus, we are to think that the owner hired them not for what he could get out of them, but because they needed the work. And he paid them a full denarius for the same reason. The owner was thinking not of profit. He was thinking of people. Boyce goes on to say that this story is one of a certain class of parables that deal in part with the problems the Jews had when Gentiles began to believe the gospel. Now think about that. The problem the Jews had when the gospels began to believe the gospel, that hadn't started yet, but Jesus is already putting that into His parables. Think about the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. It's seen in the parable of the banquet in which many refused to come, Matthew 22. And in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Luke 18. But Boyce goes on to say in his book on the parables, especially is this seen in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Yes, indeed, it is. And one reason we find it in Paul's teaching is because Jesus was placing it in His teaching even before it was happening. Jesus knew what would take place. Once the Holy Spirit was given to His disciples, He knew that the church would grow by leaps and bounds. Don't you think that the one who wept over Jerusalem 
for their rejection of Him, knew that the Jews would continue to reject the gospel and that the Gentiles would overwhelmingly respond. I think it was a centurion one time, some pagan, that Jesus said to him, I haven't seen this much faith in Israel. The kind of faith that you have. He knew that these Gentiles were going to respond. This is the issue to which Paul continues to speak in Romans. Now, as we concluded last week's sermon, we were talking about one of the first of Paul's rhetorical questions that his opponents might ask, and he continues with another here at the beginning of our passage this morning. Why does he, meaning God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? That's a question like you and I might have when we've just read everything that Paul said in Romans 9. This business about God choosing Jacob over Esau even before they were born. Well, Paul answers this question with a a sort of jolt of scriptural reality, if we will. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why did you make me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? You know, if we go back to Jesus' parable, we hear the same reality in the words of the landowner, meaning God when He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? We must understand that Jesus spoke to this issue before Paul. Paul finds the basis of his teaching in what Jesus has already put forward and in what God had already put forward through his prophets. You know, Jeremiah and Isaiah both use the picture of the potter and the clay. David would say it this way in Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What is that fullness? That's everything. That includes you and me. And so that we don't misunderstand Paul's answer here, we need to remember some biblical truths about sin. In one of his little Bible study books on Romans, Chuck Swindoll makes the point that after the fall, we have to remember the only clay that God has to work with as the potter is marked by sin. He didn't cause man to sin then in Genesis 3, nor does he make any of us disobey him today as James 1 teaches. We fallen sinners are responsible for our own sins. You know, young people, that's one of the things I see changing in America over time is that no one is responsible anymore for anything that they do. You know, my friend did it. Uh, Somebody else did it. It was my parents' fault. It was the school's fault. It was the teacher's fault. We are responsible for our own sins. In Psalm 51, that great prayer of confession, what does David say? He says, against you, O God, against you only have I sinned. I'm the one doing the sinning for me. I can't blame anyone else, nor can you. It's from this marred clay of sinful humanity that God takes on the responsibility for molding us in various ways. And as our Creator, it's His right to do so. 
Therefore, he had every right to choose Isaac instead of Ishmael as the child of promise like we talked about last week. He had every right to choose Jacob over Esau even before they were born in their mothers, from their mother's wombs. Like them, you and I are also undeserving of God's grace. But because the Lord is rich in mercy and loving kindness, He's decided to call us and to save us, those who accept Jesus Christ by faith and by the work of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, one of the emphases of this passage, though not overt, is the question, what is the picture of your God like? Now, maybe you haven't gotten anything out of this sermon so far. That's okay. But this is something you can really think about. What is the picture of your God like? And young people especially, as you move on toward college, and I speak from experience because I didn't go to a Christian college. A lot of people think I went to Erskine College. I went to Erskine Seminary. I went to the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, which even in that day and time was a very worldly school, and you're going to run up against professors who are atheists and agnostics, and they're going to try and cut every foundation under from your faith. And so you're going to have to know where does my picture of God come from because they're going to tell you a lot of things about God that's not true and that's not scriptural. Who or what shapes your idea of God? Paul is teaching us here by his example that we, what we believe about God needs to be found in and come from Scripture. Notice how many times he quotes the Old Testament. He hits us over and over and over and over with Scripture telling us what God is like from His Holy Word. And the reason that's so important is because some people read Romans 9 and maybe we're some of them and say, well, God just can't be like that. You know, this business of choosing Jacob over Esau before they're even born, I mean, God's not like that. Are you sure? It seems to me that's what Scripture says. Who or what tells you that God is not sovereign? Does your finite brain really know what justice or fairness are all about from the perspective of eternity? If it's justice we want, then we know what would happen. None of us would be saved because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Paul tells us here that out of God's mercy and compassion, He's prepared vessels of mercy. In fact, God has tolerated sinners in order to make the riches of His glory known to these vessels of mercy, these people like you and me, whom He's called and who are saved by the power of His Spirit. Then in verse 24, Paul returns to the main theme of his argument. God's call is the sole basis for inclusion in the true people of God, uh, scholar N.T. Wright has an interesting way of helping us remember this. He says, what counts is grace, not race. What counts is grace, not race. And Paul 
begins to bring this principle to its logical conclusion. Since God's grace is what matters, then He's free to call even Gentiles into His kingdom as well as Jews, as well as His chosen people. Even Gentiles, and that's good news for you and me, probably for most everyone here today, because was anyone here born a Jew? I didn't think so. So it's doubly good news because that means you and I can be saved if God is calling Gentiles into His kingdom. You see, God is that kind of God. He's free and sovereign. This means He can invite Gentiles even to come into His kingdom as His Old Testament predicted would happen. Now, if the Old Testament and Jewish tradition make it important for Paul to justify including the Gentiles, it also requires him to show why not all Jews are included. And this is why he brings up the notion of the remnant that he mentions in verse 27, quoting once again the prophet Isaiah. And we have to understand what that word remnant means for Isaiah because it changed from time to time, all throughout Israel's history. Originally, that word remnant refers to those remaining after Judah's punishment from God from whom a great people will arise. But once God's Jews had been deported to Babylon, that definition changed to all of those who had been deported and who would one day come back. And you know, we can read about that coming back in the historical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, among others. But then, after the Jews come back to the Holy Land, after they begin to live there, after generation and generation, they begin to become faithless again, and this meaning of remnant goes back to its original meaning. Those who, after God's punishment, still remain from whom a great people will arise. All because of God's power, because of God's blessing, and because faith is important. Look at verse 30. Paul says, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but rather as if it were based on works. And you see, with those words, it's like all of a sudden, we're on the Starship Enterprise, we've been transported all the way back to Romans 4, and Paul's original argument about Abraham and how he was justified by faith. This is happening, Paul says, to the Gentiles as well. They're being justified by faith, just like the Jews. Because of God's call and because of their response to the gospel by faith, they have become Abraham's offspring. They are part of his descendants that will be like the the sand on the seashore. And this is why Paul quotes Hosea at this point, which, by the way, looks like it's out of context because if you know anything about what Hosea is saying there, he's speaking to the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes of Israel. And all of a sudden, Paul's using this passage to talk about the Gentiles. How can he do that? Well, he can do it because those who are in Christ, 
constitute Abraham's seed. They're children of the promise, just like the saved Jews are, about whom this prediction of great growth was made. And as I say, this is good news for the Gentiles, those who have responded by faith, but it's bad news for many of the Jews because they're still trying to earn their salvation by works of the law. Paul says here, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. He's talking about Jesus Christ as he quotes Isaiah once again. You see, Paul's giving us a word picture here. Have you ever been walking and you were so focused on some goal out ahead of you that you didn't see something right in front of you and you tripped over it? That's that's the word picture Paul is giving us here. For those of you that never come down to the front of the sanctuary, you don't know, but there's a high spot in the floor right there in front of that pew. And early of a Sunday morning when I come in here and I've got my mind focused on going to the sound system or turn on the lights or something like that, I'll trip over that high spot. I've tripped over it several times. And I've seen some usher captains trip over it too, so I'm not just clumsy. I'm making the point it's there, and the reason I trip is because my mind is focused on something else. And this is the picture that Paul is giving us here at the end of this passage. Israel is like a person walking, and they're so focused, they're so focused on these works of the law that they can't see anything else and they stumble over the gift of grace in Jesus Christ that God is laying right at their feet. A few weeks ago I traveled to the huge metropolis of Chester to attend a graveside ceremony. I was not officiating that ceremony but I went there to hopefully support the family, and it was to be at Evergreen Cemetery. Now, I had never been to Evergreen Cemetery, but I thought I knew about where it was. And if you know me, you know that I like to arrive early to meetings and any kind of event, and I was true to form that day. I rolled into Chester 15 minutes early, and it's a good thing because I chewed up those 15 minutes looking for this cemetery. I stopped to ask, very uncharacteristic for a man, by the way. I stopped to ask directions from some people that lived there, and they told me about a cemetery out on this road, and I went out there, and of course it wasn't Evergreen Cemetery. It was a cemetery, but it wasn't the right one. And so I got back in my car and went toward the area where I thought it was and stopped and asked for the second time at 10.58 a.m., two minutes from when it was supposed to begin. And I ran into the nicest man at the Transportation Museum there in Chester. And he said, well, you know, I live out past that cemetery and I'm getting ready to go there. If you just follow me, I'll lead you right to it. I was so focused on what I thought I knew that I stayed lost. But when somebody told me to follow him, I was found. Now think about what Jesus says over and over again in Scripture. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. The Jews stayed lost, most of them, 
because they thought they were right. They literally stumbled over the good news of the gospel, but it doesn't have to be that way. Because Paul tells us whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. And for this day, that's the good news of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.